Uh, well, good morning, uh, River City. My name's Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's good, good, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you're new or visiting, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you join us this morning. Like Andy said, spend your Sunday morning with us. We'd, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like Andy was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. Um, we, we have been gone for like, missed our small group for about a month, whether it was like it got canceled because of weather or the off week or we were, on, we were gone out of town for a little while. And so we, we met for the first time in like a month with our small group la- this week on last night or on Thursday. And I just can't tell you like how life-giving that was. It's just like such, a, it just felt so great to be back in that community together. And, and so I just want to encourage, if you've been thinking about checking out a small group, like you should do that. Like it's good, like objectively great. And so we'd love to have you. And so I know it's been good for my heart. So excited about small groups, excited as well, continue our series in the Gospel of John together. But uh, like I said, if you're new or you're just visiting, it's helpful to, uh, it's helpful to know, for, it's helpful to understand that like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John's Gospel tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. But John does it in a really unique way. Uh, he totally ignores all kinds of things the other three Gospel writers focus on, and he includes a bunch of new stories for us about Jesus' life and ministry. And what we've seen throughout our study is that the, the reason for all those differences has everything to do with the reality that John's primary purpose in writing his gospel isn't necessarily to introduce people to Jesus for the first time, but rather is to kind of awaken a, a real, authentic, true, heart-level faith in Jesus amongst the people who just have a head-level knowledge about him. People who'd grown up hearing all the stories and going through all the motions and doing all the things, but whose lives weren't being changed by him. And, and so John's hope in his prayer is that in seeing Jesus through a new lens, people's lifeless head-level knowledge about Jesus might finally become like a real heart-level, life-transforming faith in him. And that's what John's after. And we saw how in the first half of the book, what John does is he focuses on Jesus's public ministry, Jesus going around teaching and preaching and, and healing, doing miracles. And we saw how all those things were about Jesus revealing himself to the world as the Messiah, as the Savior, as, as God himself would come to rescue and redeem his people. And, and, and about how John was, Jesus was calling people to have a faith in him that wasn't just about an intellectual thing, but was about a life-transforming kind of thing. And but then we saw how in the second half of the book, John zooms in on, instead of the first half of the book is a couple of years, second half of John's gospel zooms in on just a couple of days. And he focuses in on, on Jesus' last few days leading up to his death as he withdraws from the crowds and as he invests his remaining time with his disciples. And, and at the heart of what Jesus is trying to do and what John's trying to show us in these last few chapters in, in John's gospel is, is, is he, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the kind of life and ministry that he's calling them to live and to lead after his death, and, and therefore us as well. It's a section of John's gospel that's often referred to as the upper room or as the farewell discourse. And as John brings this section to a close at the end of chapter 16, what we're going to see him doing this morning is he kind of hones in on some words of encouragement that Jesus has for his disciples. And the truth is, he's had to tell them a lot of really hard, discouraging, honestly, things in the past couple of chapters. He's told them repeatedly that he's going to leave them, that they're going to abandon and betray him, that, that they'll experience all kinds of trials and hardship and opposition for connect, their connection with him. And, and he reiterates all those same things again in our passage this morning. But, but we're going to see that he doesn't stop there. You see, Jesus doesn't just want his disciples to have a kind of a sober understanding of the road ahead. He wants them to know that there is going to be available to them a kind of joy and peace 
that's going to be able to sustain them through all of it. And he wants them to see that what he's about to do is going to be the thing that secures that joy for them. And so what I want to show you this morning as we wrap up our time in John's farewell discourse here in Jesus' words, what I want to show you is that the source of the joy and the peace that Jesus promises his disciples, the, the reason why it's possible, the where they get it, the reason why they can have it, is because of his resurrection from the dead. What John wants people to see is that when Jesus' resurrection becomes a reality to you, when it sinks deeply, not just into your mind, but when that reality becomes real in your heart and in your life, it produces in you a kind of joy and a kind of peace that doesn't just empower you to endure difficult things, but it empowers you to actually overcome whatever you face. It is such good news, such an encouraging passage this morning. I can't wait to show it to you. So with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive right in. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word this morning, and God, we're just grateful for it. And God, as we come together this morning, the, the truth is, is that we really need the joy that your resurrection brings. And not just us, but like our world needs that kind of a life and that kind of a joy and that kind of a peace. And so we, we ask, God, that as we study your word, as we look at how your resurrection brings joy, we pray that you would help it to become real to us in our hearts and our lives this morning. That it wouldn't just be a head-level thing, but you'd cause it to sink deeply into our hearts. And God, I'm just really glad that uh, that doesn't rest on me. That like I could preach the greatest sermon ever, and it would like it wouldn't change anything. Uh, God, but you have the power to use the teaching of your word to make the gospel good news in our hearts, and to cause joy to be the response to hearing your word. And so, uh, I just humbly ask, would you do that, God, in me this morning as I teach, in us as we as we learn? God, we need you, and we so we look forward to how you're going to meet us in our time in your word this morning. We pray, Amen. Like I said, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 16. Uh, this morning it's verses 16 through 33. Jesus, again here speaking to his disciples, says this. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And at this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And some of you are like, I am wondering the same thing. Like, what is going on there? Verse 18, they kept asking, What, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. And Jesus saw what they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And they're like, Yes, we are asking that. That's what we want to know. Very truly I tell you, you'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices, and you'll grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child's been born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you'll receive, and your joy will be complete. And though I've been speaking figuratively, a time's coming when I'll no longer use this kind of language, but I'll tell you plainly about my Father. And in that day you'll ask in my name, and I'm not saying that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. No, the, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. 
I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you. This makes us believe that you come from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? For a time's coming and his fact has come when you'll be scattered each to your own home and you'll leave me all alone. And yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. And I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our passage this morning begins with this kind of cryptic statement that Jesus makes to his disciples in verse 16, right? In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And with the benefit of hindsight and the rest of the Gospel of John and the Bible, right, you and I, it's easy to kind of look at Jesus' statements here and be like, oh yeah, he's pretty clearly talking about his death and coming resurrection, right? That's, that's, what's, that's what's going on there. But the following verses highlight how the disciples, they, they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They, they absolutely do not get it yet. In fact, at the very end of the passage, they think they get it, and Jesus is like, you still don't get it. I'm like, you know, you could try, but no, you, don't, you didn't figure it out yet. See, and that's because the disciples, they, they don't have a category for a Savior. They don't have a category for a Messiah that would rise from the dead, let alone die in the first place. Like they just don't have they can't wrap their minds around that Jesus that that's the kind of savior that Jesus is going to be even though that's exactly what he's been trying to help them to see since the very beginning all the way back in chapter 2 right when Jesus turns water into wine at the at the wedding and what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to prepare them for for the reality that when that he wants them to understand that while his coming death is going to cause them great sadness and grief what he wants them to see on the front end is that it's not going to last because he's not going to stay dead. Right? They're going to see him again. And when they do, it's going to be the source of this incredible joy and peace that's going to empower them to face everything that he's warned them about. And so what I want to do with our time this morning as we take a look at this passage together is I just want to highlight for you four things, four things that Jesus tells us about the kind of joy and peace that his resurrection brings. Four things but the kind of joy and peace that his resurrection brings. And the first one is simply this. First thing I want you to see is that Jesus' resurrection, it brings an overpowering joy. It brings an overpowering joy. Verse 20 through 22, again, very truly I tell you, you'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You'll grieve, but your grief, he says, will turn into joy. Just like a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time's come. When her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child's been born into the world. So it is with you. Right now is your time of grief, but I'll see you again, and you will rejoice. See, the kind of joy that Jesus is describing, that his resurrection is going to bring, is not just a kind of joy that empowers you to endure difficult things. It's not, just a, it's not only a sustaining kind of joy. It's not something that just gets you through. It's a kind of joy that overpowers those things. A couple years ago, I remember my wife Hannah, she had a kidney stone. And she told me, as uh, someone who has given birth, that it did indeed hurt worse than having giving birth, right? And she was really glad when the kidney stone had passed, right? But, uh, and the pain was over, but I wouldn't describe her response as joyful. I'd like describe it more so as like just relieved. Right? Like, that, that hurts and it's good for that to be over. 
But you compare that with when our, our kids were born. Uh, from everything I could tell, I mean, obviously didn't have firsthand experience, but from everything I could tell, that was an uncomfortable experience, right? <laughs> and yet as soon as Emma and Caleb were born, as soon as the doctor placed them on her chest, I could just tell she was just beaming with joy. It was just like all the pain and all the anguish, like that didn't even cross her mind. Right? It was just like, it, it just, she'd just forgotten about it, and like the, because like the joy of holding our kids... It was so full. It was so precious. I remember just like weeks after giving birth, like she's still recovering, right? Because like, spoiler alert, if you haven't had kids yet, like the, it just it hurts for a while apparently, right? Again, not firsthand knowledge, but again, I've been told, right? And she's still recovering, right? But she, she was talking about having another baby, right? Already, just like just real soon after all that had happened. And Hannah's a long-distance runner, and so like all runners, there is something broken in her brain that says like pain is good somehow, right? But um, I'll shoot straight with you. She has never said that she wanted to try having another kidney stone, right? As that's like it's never been like, oh, that hurt too. Like let's do it again, you know? Like that—that's not what's going on. See, see, the difference between having a baby and having a kidney stone is not the degree of pain. They're both hurt a lot. It's the new life that brings joy at the end of it. You see, and that's what Jesus is trying to explain to the disciples. He says, guys, listen, I'm about to leave you. I'm about to die. All right, but that's not going to be the end of the story. I'm going to see you again. And when you see me again, when the reality of my resurrection, when that dawns on you, when that becomes real to you, when that new life becomes real to you, it's going to produce in you the kind of joy unlike anything else can. It's going to be a kind of joy that overwhelms all the sorrow and all the grief and all the pain. It doesn't remove it. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't just like magically disappear. It's not like it doesn't count anymore. But it overpowers it. It makes all of those things, all the pain and the sorrow, it makes all that stuff seem small and insignificant and temporary and like you would be altogether willing to do it again. So that's exactly what the Apostle Paul's talking in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when he writes that he considers our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed. Or like Peter describes in his first letter to the churches. In chapter 1, he talks about this living hope and this rejoicing that the resurrection brings even in the midst of all kinds of pain and all kinds of suffering and all kinds of trials. You see, through the windshield, Jesus' death looked like something to the disciples that could only possibly be a bad thing. It could only bring pain. It could only bring grief. And yet while the world rejoices thinking they defeated Jesus, overcome him, and yet through the rearview mirror, like what Jesus wants them to see is like, you're going to look back and what you're going to see is that this thing that I'm about to walk through is going to be the source of a joy that will overwhelm all of the sorrow. Because it won't be the end of the story. See, he rose from death, he conquered it, and joy, like the joy that that reality brings, it overpowers all the pain. But that's not all that we see happening, Right? See, verse 22 goes on, not just to tell us that it's going to be a pain that turns into joy. We see in the end of verse 22, he says, it's a kind of joy that no one will take away. That brings us to the second thing that you have to see about the joy that Jesus' resurrection brings. Right? It's an unshakable, it's an untakeable kind of joy. 
See, the kind of joy that gets produced when Jesus' resurrection sinks deeply into our hearts, when it becomes a reality to us. It's a joy that no one and nothing will be able to take away from you because here's the difference. It's not a joy that's based on subjective circumstances. It's a joy that's rooted in, that's based on an objective reality. You see, worldly joy, that's also just known as happiness. Right? It's always situational. Right? When things are going your way, when you have a good job, when you have a good career, when you have enough money or your marriage is going well, your kids are doing well, then you're happy. But as soon as those things start not working out, you start to lose that. You see, worldly joy is fragile. Any amount of hardship or uncertainty just tips it over, causes it to shatter. But resurrection joy is different. See, Jesus wants the disciples to see that the joy that's in store for them is not just a fragile kind of joy. It's a joy that's deep and that's durable. Right? It's one that can sustain sorrow. It's one that doesn't run at the sight of hardship. Because it's not based on situations it's based on something that's been done and finished and accomplished and therefore something that cannot be undone. He's defeated death. He won. See, and the reason why that unshakable joy is so unshakable and so powerful is because the resurrection is the proof that everything else that Jesus said is true. It's the proof that everything else he said is true. If he can overcome death, then there is nothing he cannot do. And so when he says that he's the bread of life and the light of the world, when he says he's the good shepherd and the gate, when he says that he's the, the true vine and that he's the way and that he is the truth, when he says that he is the very resurrection and source of life altogether, when he says that he is God himself, it means that he is. And when he says that all who believe in him will have eternal, true, real, lasting life that starts now and goes on into eternity, they will. And when he promises that he's going to prepare a place for the disciples and that one day he is returning to bring them back to be with him where he is, he will do it. It's a sure thing. And so the joy he provides is powerful and it's unshakable because it is rooted in his unshakable word that is proven by his rising from the dead. And if he can overcome death, he can overcome everything. And so when his resurrection becomes real to you, when it sinks deeply into your heart, you won't just have an overpowering joy. You'll have an unshakable kind of joy. But more than that, we see at the end of the passage, you'll also have a courageous joy. And that's the third thing I want you to see about the kind of joy and peace that Jesus' resurrection brings. It's courageous. Verse 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. That phrase in the middle there where Jesus says, take heart. It's a, it's a phrase in the original language that's really translated, really what it really means is take courage, be brave, right? And I point that out because it's really important that you see that the kind of joy and the kind of peace that Jesus' resurrection brings is not just this kind of faith and joy that's like based on blind faith and just, just kind of some naive optimism, right? Just spoiler alert, that's, those things aren't, crea that's not crea courageous, right? There's like 
Naive optimism, that's not courage, that's just stupidity. You see, some people's approach to joy is just to like ignore hard things. Right? You, you don't talk about things that are hard. You don't talk about things that are, that are difficult. Right? You, you don't try to be honest about the depth of evil and pain and sin and suffering in the world. Right? Just like ignorance is bliss. And if I don't talk about it and I don't deal with it, then I don't have to deal with it. Like, and everything is great. Right? That's, my, that's the kind of joy I'm after. Right? Maybe you've met people like that. They're just like painfully positive. Right? Like they're, they're people who are, they're, they always have a smile on. You ask them how they're doing, always the answer is great. But like the truth is like nobody is doing great all the time. And it's obvious that the, the smile is just a mask. It's not real joy. It's just naive optimism or like intentional ignorance. And that's not the kind of joy or the peace that Jesus' resurrection brings, right? Verse 33, he tells the disciples, he warns them again about, he just repeats the same things he's been warning them about. In this world, you will have troubles. Absolute certainty. It's not like you might, you may, I don't know, see what happens. Jesus says, no, in this world, you will have troubles. See, the problem is so many times people come to faith, they come to God, they come to church, and they're just like, wow, if I just like do this, then like God, like if I just do the right thing, then God's going to take away all my problems. It's like, there is no promise in the Bible of that. There isn't one. On this side of heaven, the only promise we're, that we're sure of is that there will be trouble. See, but resurrection, joy, and peace... It's not found in ignorance about trouble or in the absence of it. It's not also found in the removal of trouble. See, resurrection joy is found in the midst of trouble, Jesus says. One commentator writes it this way, When Jesus speaks, therefore, of peace, it is not a peace of unruffled days, but the inner confidence of the warrior who is weary and thirsty and outnumbered and wounded, but who fights bravely on, confident of the outcome, assured of the victory. Since we are not saved from trouble, we are saved in trouble. This type of peace, serenity in the midst of confusion, is far superior to the easier peace because it abides while conquering obstacles rather than avoiding them. See, the peace and the joy that Jesus' resurrection brings, it's not an ignorant one. It's not an avoiding peace. It's not an avoiding joy. It's a courageous one. It's the kind of joy that doesn't need to avoid and ignore, but instead can face challenges and difficulties head on because we know the outcome of the battle. Right, again, verse 33, in this world have trouble. You will have trouble, but take heart. Be courageous. Why? Because I have overcome the world. She says, the battle is finished. I already won. It's done, right? D-Day happened. We're just, you're in the middle. You're waiting for VE Day in World War II, right? Like the battle is done. Like there is no way that there, this is going another direction. And you're waiting for the experience of that victory. Like we talked about earlier, the resurrection, right? It, it's a proclamation, not about what is possible, it's a proclamation about what's finished, what's sure, what's done, what's completed. The battle is over. Jesus won and he did it for you. And I just, I need to pause here for a moment just to clarify this. It is so important that you see this. Right? Jesus does not say, I overcame and so can you. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, I did it, so like you can also do it. 
No, he says, I overcame. He says, I did it for you. You see, if Jesus is just this example of overcoming that we can like follow, the only thing that does is it just crushes you under the weight of the fact that you always fail to overcome. Like you always run short. We all do. One commentator puts it this way. He says, if Jesus was simply a heroic man who achieved a superior life, it just makes my inferiority all that more unbearable because I have certainly tried to overcome the world and failed. But if Jesus is more than a human, if he is indeed the Son of God who overcame the world, not simply for his own sake, but for our sake as well, if his victory is extended to us when we embrace him in faith, then his triumph can be our triumph. Therefore, the gospel is genuinely good news. Jesus does not say, I overcame and so can you. He says, I overcame. I won the battle on your behalf. And through faith in me, my victory becomes yours. See, that's such good news. See, resurrection, joy, and peace, it's not naively optimistic, it's courageous. It's, it acknowledges the reality of sin and trouble and suffering in this life without losing hope, and yet it confidently engages in the battle without giving into doubt and without giving into fear. One pastor I listened to this week, he described it as, as how this verse helps give us a spiritual depth perception. See, I don't know if you've ever had an eye injury or not, but what you find pretty quickly is that if you only have one eye, you absolutely cannot tell how far something is away. Like, you, you totally lose, like, the ability to accurately perceive, like, how, like, the depth of where things are at and what things really are like, right? And that's what Jesus is doing for you this morning. He's saying, listen, on the one half, I need you to see, you will have trouble. And with the other, I need you to see that I've already overcome all of it. And it's only, right, when, when both of those realities... Right? When, the, when, when you see that the resurrection is confirms both of those things, that you'll have trouble and that Jesus is overcome, what will happen is you'll be able to actually have a courageous kind of peace, one that doesn't need to avoid and one that doesn't need to ignore and one that doesn't need to stick your head in the sand, but one that can face the challenges of following Jesus in this world head on and not just in like a gritting it and baring your teeth and just like white knuckling it, but with joy with life. And so we've seen how resurrection joy, it's overpowering, it's untakeable, it's courageous, but there's one last thing that's really important you see in our passage this morning. See, the resurrection joy Jesus promises his disciples, it's also prayerful. Verse 23, he says to them, in that day you'll no longer ask me anything Right, the day when my resurrections become real to you. And that day you no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And until now you've not asked me for anything, you've not asked for anything in my name, but ask and you'll receive, and your joy will be complete. You see, what Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples and what they absolutely are not going to understand until after he has risen from the dead is that his death, what it's going to accomplish is it's going to remove the barrier of sin that separates God from his people, which means they will now have unhindered, unfettered access to the Father. It means that they can approach him with utter confidence, knowing that he will hear their prayers. They don't need a medium. They don't need a guide. They don't need an intermediary. They can come straight to the Father themselves because of what Jesus has done. 
But it's not just the ability to approach God with this unhindered access that Jesus tells them will bring joy. It says it's seeing him respond to those prayers that brings joy. Jesus is saying that, that seeing God answer prayer, that's going to keep your joy tank full. Because what it does is it's this reminder, right, that God hears you, that he sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you. There are few things in this life that produce joy like seeing God answer your prayers. There are few things like it. Because it's this reminder, right, that he's not far off and distant, but that he's near and present. That he's with you. That he knows you, he hears you, he loves you. See, but there's this really important caveat Jesus makes. He doesn't just say that because of what he's done, because of his death and his resurrection, God will just do whatever you ask him to. He says says that it's prayers that are said in his name. Those are the ones that bring joy. It's really important that we highlight a few things here about what that means, because it's easy to kind of misunderstand what Jesus is saying. To to pray in Jesus' name, first of all, it means that we come to God in prayer, not on the basis of our own merit and our own standing, but on the basis of Jesus's. So what happens all the time is we tend to approach God on the basis of like our own name and our own merit, right? And we're like, God, I've been working really hard. I've been trying really hard. I've been like trying to obey and I've been trying to go to church and I've been trying to do the right things. And so like I'm praying and I'm like pretty hopeful you're going to answer this, right? Because like, like I've been holding up my part and so you got to hold up your part because I've been holding up my part. Just spoiler alert, your name doesn't count for anything. Like you're not impressive, Right? You don't like you pull out your resume before God, he's not like, wow, that's great. Right? I better, I have to do it. That's not what's going on. The other flip side is that sometimes we think we've sinned so badly that there's just no way God will ever hear us. Like he like he has shut himself off to us because we have rebelled so much. And the truth is that both of those things are lies. Not only do they not work, they just leave you defeated and more, or more self-righteous. They, neither of those things produce joy. When you come to God on the basis of your own name, whether the superiority of the, or the inferiority of it, like it, just, it never produces joy. It just produces defeatism or self-righteousness. But instead, if we might pray in Jesus' name, right, which means that we come to God admitting that he doesn't owe us anything, and we're not relying on ourselves for God to hear us and respond to us, but we're coming to him on the basis of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Like that's the kind of prayer that brings joy. And secondly, praying in Jesus' name, it means that we align our prayers with his priorities and glory. Right? Like sometimes people think like if Like what Jesus is saying when he says pray in my name, he doesn't say like, hey, if you close your prayers by saying in Jesus' name, amen, like that's like the secret code, right? And like unlocks like the God key and like then God has to answer you. He's like, oh, dang it, like you said in Jesus' name. So I'm like, now whatever it is, like I have to do it. Like that's not what that is. You see, a person's name in the ancient world, it represented that person as a whole, who they were, what they were like. And so praying in Jesus' name means to pray in a way that is consistent with his character and his will and his desires. One commentator puts it this way, joy-producing prayers, they ask for and desire what Jesus delights in. Joy-producing prayer asks for and delights in what, asks for and desires what Jesus delights in. 
Now, we do not have the time to do the deep dive on this this morning, but I'll just say this. One of the best ways to experience the joy of answered prayers is to look at the stuff that Jesus prays for and pray that stuff. Right? Because you can be real sure the things Jesus prays get answered. So if you want to know what to pray for, start there. Right? It's not the end of the list, but start there. We'll see more of that next week as we take a look at chapter 17. But one last thing, right? So praying in Jesus' name. Right? It means coming to him on the base, coming to God on the basis of Jesus' name and his merits, not our own. It means, right, it means coming to him, aligning our prayers and our desires with his. But lastly, praying in Jesus' name means that even if we don't get what we ask for, you know that you are still loved. See the end of verse 27. Right? Jesus tells, what does he say to the disciples there? I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He says, no, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from him. And he says, the Father lo- himself loves you because you have loved me. Hear this, not because you asked for the right thing. Now, his love for you is not like, oh, they finally figured it out. They finally asked me for the right thing. I can love them now. No, his love for you has everything to do with your love for his son. Not that you ask for the right thing. You see, God is a good father and he only gives us what is best. And the truth is if God delays what you are asking for or if he says no, then you can be absolutely sure that it is not because he didn't hear you and it is not because he doesn't love you. In fact, you can be sure of the opposite. See, praying in Jesus' name means that we entrust the responses to his wisdom, believing like Tim Keller always puts it, that God would give you whatever you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. That God would have give you whatever you asked for if you knew the things that he knows. See, when we align our prayers with Jesus' character and his desires, when we come to him, the Father, on the basis of his merit, not our own, and when we trust that he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he did, then you and I will get the joy of experiencing him answering our prayers. All of which is made possible by his death and resurrection. You see, and that's what we're celebrating and remembering every week when we take communion. See, it's Jesus' death. It's his resurrection. It's what he has done on our behalf for us. That's the thing that secures our joy. And reminding ourselves that in love Jesus died for us so that through faith we could be united with him both now and forever and that we might have a kind of resurrection joy and peace that empowers us to walk with him every day. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't, save your, doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus. And then we might see his resurrection as the stamp of our hope and our joy and that we would be drawn to him in love and empowered to live for him with a kind of joy and peace that cannot be taken. And so if you put your trust in Jesus if you see him as the resurrection and the life, if your hope is rooted in what he has done, not what you can do, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and blood broken and shed for you. But if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. And you're like, I'm just not really sure about that whole resurrection thing yet. 
It's like, I want you to know you are welcome here. And your questions are welcome here. And your doubts are welcome. But I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Like God is not after go, like religious rituals and going through the motions. Right? It's after a heart that says, like, Jesus, you died and you rose again. And my hope is in you entirely. And so ask him. Ask him to help you give you that kind of hope. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we'd love to help you get to know him. So as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song, I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. See, the truth is, is that while nothing can take away the resurrection joy that Jesus promises his disciples, you absolutely can give it away. And the truth is, we just trade the resurrection joy Jesus offers us for all these lame, non-lasting, subpar, fake joys all the time. I want to encourage you this morning, ask him to help you to see if the joy that you have is worldly joy or if it's resurrection joy. Is your joy based on circumstances or is it based on the unchanging truth of Jesus' victory over Satan and sin and death? Is it able to wade through sorrow and not be overcome? Or does your joy run at the first turn of trouble, the first sign of it? Is it courageous? Do you have a joy that enters into hardship? Or do you have a joy that just like has to avoid it and has to ignore it? Is your joy being refueled by seeing Jesus answer your prayers? See, the truth is for all of us, the answer to those questions is at least a little bit of both. Right? We, we're always trading this real joy Jesus offers us for the fake stuff. We're doing it all the time. And the question is, right? how do you change that? Right? How do you trade the fake, worldly, temporary, circumstantial joy? How do you trade it for the real thing? How do you trade it for resurrection joy? Well, Romans chapter 15 puts it this way. Paul praying for the churches, he says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. As you trust in Him. See, the way you get and the way that you keep worldly joy is basically like by just like not thinking about it too hard. Right? Like just like don't think about it too hard. Move on. But the resurrection joy is different. It's not found by ignoring trouble, but by focusing on a God who wants to meet you in the midst of trouble. It's by seeing the resurrected, ruling, reigning King Jesus as the proof of the inevitable victory that you will one day experience because he's already won it for you. And so when you're finding that you don't have joy, or when you're finding that your joy is just a worldly kind of temporary thing, press into Jesus and his word. Look at the promises that he's made and, and the hope that you have in him and let his resurrection be the stamp and the seal that secures that joy for you. Let the unchangeable finished work of his death and his resurrection be the good news your heart needs to have joy. And lastly, resurrection joy, it, it, I just, it's so important that you see this. 
Resurrection joy doesn't come when you try to overcome trials. Right? On our own, we, we have nothing. Right? Resurrection joy comes when you trust that Jesus overcame it all for you. And that because of all he did, all the struggles that you are facing, they're temporary. And whatever pain and hardship and sorrow and discouragement you are walking through will come to an end. But the joy that you have in him won't. And so ask the self this morning, where are you looking for victory? Where do you search for the strength to prevail? Where do you look for the help to overcome? If it's in anything other than Jesus, it will fail you. Your job can go in a moment. Your kids, your family, your career, your country, your insurance, all of it can go in a moment. But if your hope is in Jesus and his victory over Satan and sin and death proven by him rising from the dead, then you have a joy. You have a kind of joy that's overpowering, that's unshakable and untakeable. You have a joy that's courageous and a joy that constantly gets refueled by seeing the God of the universe answer your prayers. So might we be a people that ask God to give us that joy and that keep running after the real thing. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for you and we are so thankful for this promise you give the disciples and therefore us as we might follow you of a real lasting, secure kind of joy and peace. One that doesn't need to avoid trouble, one that doesn't have to ignore it, but one that can face it head on. One that overwhelms our sorrow and overwhelms grief. One that empowers us, Jesus, not just to make it through, but to have life in the midst of hardship. Jesus, I need that kind of joy, and I trade it for the fake stuff all the time. And we need that kind of joy, and we trade it for the fake stuff all the time. Might we lay hold of the joy your resurrection brings as we trust in you, the ruling, reigning, risen King. Amen.